All right. Well, thanks for participating this week in uh, the worship of God. Coming Friday night. For those of you able to come to that, it was a sweet evening. Um, and thanks for being here to worship our great God and King. If you're new here, this is your first time, uh, you're going to hear about the resurrection a little bit this morning. You're also going to hear about death. But before we get into that, I just want to say, you may feel really awkward here. You may have gotten, someone convinced you to come with you, them this morning. Or they, they cashed in all of their, their relational collateral to say, it's Easter, you got to come with me. And I just want to know, maybe you're feeling awkward about that, but here, here, here's the reality of what, where you've walked into. This is a place for deeply needy sinners who desperately needed Jesus who's going to die on the cross for them and who will raise to life. I spent the call to worship this morning fussing at one of my children, cower, towering over him. And so what I want you to know this morning, you may feel uncomfortable, but you're not near as uncomfortable as I am. <laughs> a sinner who has to get up and preach, but who desperately needs the grace of Jesus Christ. So that's what we've come to celebrate this morning, and so we welcome you. We're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 9 this morning. Yes, we're in Ecclesiastes still, and we are going to preach on Ecclesiastes for Easter. We'll see how this works out. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, we're going to read through verse 10. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and to him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has some hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have, and they have no reward. For the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy has already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. So, go eat your bread with joy. <laughs> and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments always be white, and let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life, and in your toil and at that which you toil under the sun. And whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom and shield, that's the place of the grave, to which you are going. This too is God's word. Praise be to the Lord. Well, verses 1 through 6 is giving us this rather um, abrupt point. Death is inevitable. One thing is abundantly clear in life. Death is a predator and that predator tracks us all down. We can't outrun death no matter how much kale we eat, how many medicines we take, how many vaccines we take or don't take. You can bathe yourselves in essential oils, eat a plant-based diet, do push-ups for the time you were a fetus in your mother's womb, and you can Botox yourself frozen. It won't matter. Death is inevitable. The teacher is saying here, view yourself like a goldfish. It is a nice surprise if you survive the trip home. There is a time coming when you will be no more. 
That is a fact. And in fact, not only will you be no more, no one will remember you, the good things or the bad things that you did, it's saying in verses 4, 5, and 6. In fact, while most things in life are utterly uncertain, and there are a few things that we can be eh, somewhat certain about in life, there is one thing we can be absolutely certain about, and that is death. Now, of course, we don't like to think about this. It is an uncomfortable thing. It's not that we don't logically don't know that it won't happen to us. It's just that it makes us rather anxious. Woody Allen put it this way, I don't mind dying, I just don't want to be there when it happens. <laughs> Heard the story of one pastor friend, he was sharing with me that his, his grandmother, they would go out after church each Sunday, they would go out to lunch, and his grandmother, they would leave at the same time, his grandmother would always choose to drive separately, and no matter where they went, she seemed to arrive 10, 15, sometimes 20 minutes later than everybody else. And this baffled the whole family. Why in the world was she, they were, she left at the same time as them. And finally discovered one day that she hated driving past cemeteries so badly that she would go out of her way in whatever direction she could in order to not have to pass a single graveyard on the way to lunch. She didn't want to be reminded of death. But the teacher here in Ecclesiastes invites you to walk through the graveyard and to acknowledge this inevitable fact. But he isn't just pushing our face into the inevitability of death out of some morbid enjoyment. No, the teacher is saying that a life of wisdom actually requires that we face up to the inevitability of death. In fact, he's saying that there is no more powerful tool for shaping your life for wisdom than facing up to the realities of death itself. Life and death, they go together. Not quite like peas and carrots, but they are far more tightly bound up than those two things. The fact is that there is an end to life is the most powerful piece of information that can affect how you live your life today. Death gives perspective for this afternoon. Such talk strikes us as morbid and gloomy, but this is actually an ancient practice. And every ancient wisdom principle follows this. In fact, you know, in the old days, when an ancient military general would enter back into the city and they'd have a parade celebrating him, they're throwing flowers and coins and, and, and essentially worshiping and lauding him, and the tension, tension was great. And he's riding his chariot. But ancient history shows us that, that the general would always have his aide riding right behind him on the chariot. He'd stand right behind him. And as, and as the general was being lauded and praised, it was the aide's job to say these two words over and over and over again. Memento mori, memento mori, that's the Latin for remember your death, remember your death. In other words, it was a practice to to make the general, even in his greatest moments of heights and glory, to go, remember, you are but breath, you are but a man who will die. Socrates said the whole aim of those who practice philosophy was not an abstract study for intellectuals, but it was a way of life. And the whole aim of those who practice it is to practice for dying and death. For him, the life well lived was the life spent getting ready to die. Well, death can come suddenly, and we don't know when it's going to come, but acknowledging that it will come, maybe sooner than we realize, is the way of wisdom. There's a story of JFK was talking to one of his aides. It was about 1960 or so. It was right after he had won the presidential election. And now some of his close aides to Kennedy were not fans of Lyndon Johnson, who was his vice presidential uh, nominee. A lot of the Kennedy and Johnson folks didn't really get along so well. They were from very different parts of the country. And this aide was expressing this frustration to President Kennedy. And JFK was trying to calm this aide down. He said, hey, 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 don't worry. 
I'm 43 years old. I'm not going to die in office. So it doesn't really matter who is vice president. Remember your death. Memento mori. It will change the way you make decisions today. There is nothing more applicable to your life than the fact that it will end. But merely considering the inevitability of death is not enough. We also have a more significant question. When we face our death and and, and focus on it, we have this critical question. Is death the true end, full stop, period, or is there something after it? Is death the true end or is death the beginning of something else? Well, the Christian account confronts us with two options. Two options. Here's option one. Two main headings this morning is death without resurrection. So let's consider death without resurrection as a morbid exercise on this happy Easter morning. Death plays, it says in verses one through six, really what it says is it plays no favorites. It says there, that I laid this to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and the deeds are in the one hand, in the hand of God, whether it is love or hate, man does not know, both are before him. In other words, what he's saying here is that whether man, God loves or hates the righteous or the wise, it's kind of hard to tell because we end up in the same place as everybody else. He continues in verses 2. It's the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and to the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner, and he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. In other words, what he's saying is this. What's the one event that comes to all? The righteous and the wicked, the clean and the unclean, the liar and the truth teller. The one event is death. Death is the one event. And this is a critical point that I want you to see is that what he is saying here and what what it appears that that the teacher is showing us is that if this is the end of all things, if it ends with death, period, full stop, that death without resurrection renders life utterly meaningless, no matter what you do. That is Solomon's point here. It does not matter how wise you are, how much money you make, how much comfort you have, how, much, how successful you are, how religious you are, how cleanly you live your life. Death is the great equalizer. The human assassin comes looking for us all and he will find you no matter how good or bad you have been. Death robs life of value. And he continues this on in verses five and six. He says, for the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing and they have no more reward. For their memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate, their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. In other words, everything is wiped away. This is actually where we began the whole series. Vanity of vanities, the teacher says here in Ecclesiastes. And he gives descriptions of like, hey, you're going to die, and no one's going to remember you anymore. And I use an illustration of like, I don't know the names of my grandparents. I don't remember them. I don't remember even their name. That's only a couple generations In a few generations, you will be dead and gone. No one will remember anything that you've done. And that makes life appear to be rather meaningless. Not only that, but it makes life, how we live, rather morally subjective. And frankly, makes morals, we could throw them out the window to begin with. It says in verse 3, this is an evil that is done under the sun. That same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil. And madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. In other words, they're evil. And then they die, just like the righteous. So what does it matter whether you're good or bad? And that makes sense. If there is no God to judge, if there is no objective standard, if this is all there is, there is is no sense of morality. Anybody trying to project morality upon you, it is mere silliness. You can live however you want in this pointless world. You know, one great Georgia writer tried to bring this out. 
In her southern gothic short story novel, Flannery O'Connor, in A Good Man is Hard to Die, she depicts a serial killer. And the story is the account of this killer sharing his perspective on life, his worldview, even as he kills a family of six. And he shoots them one by one in the head. And he philosophizes about how in the absence of any real savior and any God, there is no meaning. And the only thing to do is there's nothing for you to do except to enjoy the few minutes you got left the best way you can. And he says, I have chosen that the best way for me to enjoy my life is by killing somebody or burning down his house or doing some other meanness to him. No pleasure but meanness is mine, he says. Goodbye, sweet morality. The perspective and view of death or death full stop is just enjoy whatever pleasure you can while you can, whether it's right or wrong, whether it harms you or harms those around you, whether it does good for you, it does bad for you, it doesn't matter in the end. So do what you want. Some of you may know the name Billie Eilish. She's a uh, fairly well-known singer uh, these days, but she made a music video on her, uh, for her song, When the Party's Over. This is the pictures from that music video. And here's the scene. It's a room with four walls, and you have no idea what's outside those walls. She's simply alone in this room, and she's seated at a table. And on the table is a glass, a glass filled to the brim with a black liquid, liquid and the liquid is poison. But there's nothing else to eat or drink in the whole room. In fact, in, throughout the video, it shows that she is dying of thirst. And as the music video goes along, she wants to drink it desperately. And she know, but she knows that if she drinks it, she will die. But she also knows that if she does not drink it, she's going to die of thirst. So what does she choose to do? And as the music video plays along, she chooses to take the cup. And she drinks it to the last drop. And then she weeps, her tears being the black liquid. She weeps and then dies. She's giving us a perfect example of life under the sun. If this is all we have, death one way or another, this is what is offered to us. To simply drink up life to the fullest, even if it kills you. It doesn't matter anyways. Enjoy what you can as you drink it down, your gullets. Your ending is the same as everybody else's. Well, that was a fun exercise, wasn't it? That's point one. Death without resurrection So, praise God, we have another point this morning, death with resurrection. And here's where we hear the gospel. The resurrection changes things rather drastically. We sang that this morning. The preacher maintains that there is more than an empty nothing that awaits us. We have a future relationship with the one who created us. He has, it brought this about, including our judgment. He said in, in Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 17, I said in my heart, God will judge both the righteous and the wicked. The teacher is saying that there must be something more because an eternal God exists and he's going to judge all that we do and he aches to know that the eternal God in his judgment is going to give us more than simply what we have in this life. Now what Ecclesiastes, the teacher here, aches for, the New Testament answers for us most clearly. It salves the ache that he has. For in the gospel of the New Testament, we see in Romans chapter 5, Paul writes this, that death has entered this world and all the meaninglessness that comes with it because of one man's sin. And that with him, all humanity fell. That we all die and all of life is rendered meaningless because of sin. Where sin is, is where death is. But he says, what if there's one man who can come and do away with sin, then he would also be able to do away with death. We see sin and death, they go together. And so we have in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. And the question that needs to be raised is this, how does Jesus redeem us from the curse of death? 
Well, that is where the cross comes in in Friday nights. And which what Jesus does is sin is what leads to death. Jesus says, I will swallow sin. I will take it on myself. I will take out the wrath. I will have all the wrath of God poured out on me. I will drink the full cup of the poison of God's wrath. I will drink it to the dregs, every one last of your sins and sorrows. I will take in on myself, and I will enter into death itself for you. But then what Sunday tells us is that he was then raised to life. Meaning that when he drank those last dregs of that drop, that means he took every one last of your sins. If you trust in him, that he has taken all of your sins and that you now have what he has, which is life eternal. And so Romans 6.23, yes, says the wages of sin is death, but the second half of it is the free gift of God is eternal life. And that is what we celebrate this morning. The fact that Jesus came to defeat sin, and in defeating sin, he also defeats death, and therefore offers you not just forgiveness, but life and life eternal. And now from this, we can live actually a more full wisdom picture that we can get from the teacher of Ecclesiastes, because wisdom comes from contemplating death, but death as it really is, a death with resurrection. Death without resurrection leads to one perspective of the good life, but death with resurrection leads to an entirely other perspective. And that's why we have the incredible shift in verse 7. Everything's meaningless, it seems, in the first six verses. Verse 7, go. Go, he says. And here are the wisdom points that the teacher wants us to know. In view of a God who is judge and who has taken the judgment for all of your sin, has taken the death upon himself, and has defeated that death so that you may have life, two points Two ways you can live in light of the resurrection based on the wisdom teachings of the teacher here in Ecclesiastes. Remembering your death and your life in Jesus Christ teaches you to enjoy your life today. Remembering your death actually frees you to enjoy life today. We're going to walk through this briefly, these verses 7 through 10. Verse 7, go eat your bread with joy and drink your, your wine with a merry heart. In other words, contemplate death and take it to heart so that you can enjoy life. That is his point. Death teaches us how to enjoy life. And he uses one single imperative, go. This is his command. This is what you must do in the face of death. You're going to die one day. Go, enjoy life. Verse 7, the second half, for God has already approved what you do. Now, this does not mean that you can simply live however you want. God cares how you live. You have to view and live your life in view of how he has called you to live as to what the good life is in, in, in view of him. But God does approve and he does take delight when his children and his joy, his gifts. And he approves of you because of the cross of Jesus Christ that has taken all of your sins and given you his righteousness so you can enjoy life. Not wondering if your life measures up to his standards. You do measure up to his standards because you have the standard of Jesus Christ already given to you. Verse 8, let your garments always be white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Now here, you know, that might seem odd for some of you. Why, I have to wear white? Now this is the only commandment I think we pretty much get in, regard, in Scripture in regards to a, a, a dress code. Now what were white clothes? White clothes were what you wore for parties. It was your party clothes, your celebration clothes. And oil was meant to help you smell good and make your appearance look good. So it's saying, yes, life is hard. Yes, you're going to die. So go to parties sometimes. Yes, sometimes you'll be at funerals, but don't keep the black shroud on. Put the party clothes back on. You know, 
There are so many of you who live like this, in which you have faced death already and sorrow in your life. There's one particular member of our church, a particular woman who I enjoy so much. Um, Frankly, she's a delight to me. From the moment I met her, I've been making fun of her. And she lets me do it, and and yet she gives it back to me. She goads me, and she critiques me with a twinkle in her eye. I can appreciate this banter. This woman has also endured a lot of hurt and sorrow and grief. She has lost much, and she has experienced disappointment and death in her life. She has been righteous, and yet life in God's providence has given her lots of grief. But she likes to wear a particular brand of clothing for women that is full of a lot of vibrant colors. It's beachy. It's summery. If if, if a party could be patterned in a dress, it would be what she wears. And I like the image. She is one who has endured sorrow and suffering and not knowing why God has brought it, and yet she wears the party clothes. And she hosts people in her home. And so here's the question. What does it look like to dress tomorrow and to groom yourself for today as a person living all day as if you're under the smile of God? He has already approved of you in Christ Jesus. Hey, you! Hey, you who trust in Jesus! You're not going to hell anymore. Death is not all there is. So why don't you party sometimes? Verse 9, enjoy your life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun because that is your portion in life and your toil at which you toil under the sun. In other words, what he's saying is enjoy your wife, your marriage, your marriage bed. Enjoy the work that God gives you to do in this world. Verse 10, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom and shield to which you are going. In other words, he's saying, listen, you're going to be dead today, so burn your energy now. Live. Wisdom teaches us to think and live by reverse engineering our lives, to think frequently about the last day of our life, and then work backwards from there. What will people say about you at your funeral? Well, they say, man, he was a lazy bum. Or they say, man, he lived with gusto. What did you do? What did you give your life to? Don't wait. Don't wait to give your life to something. Give it now. What will you have invested in? Death is inevitable, but what are you going to live for today? Death is a teacher that helps us enjoy God's gifts all the more today. The simple and the great and the large and the small. I've had the experience of this a couple times. Not a ton, because I have a fairly young church, but it's happened a few times. Coming home from the hospital in which I sat with someone who was dying, and I watched them go. And I got a front row seat to watching them leave this world and sat with their family and those who were left behind. Now, do you think this made me come home and cry? Actually, yeah, oftentimes it did. But more than that, what I would always do is when I went home, I wouldn't just go and hide in a room by myself. But what I found each time I did that is I would go home and I would take greater joy in reading my kids a bedtime story and, and hearing about their day and nibbling on their ears as we snuggle together. Death is indeed the most poignant of teachers and revealing how we live today. Now, there's a greater point than that, than simply enjoy the small things around you. Because we're not simply enjoying them in and of themselves. But the larger point here is not simply enjoy life, but enjoy life and receive what pleasures that God has given you as a gift that points you back to God, that gives you the Lord. The gifts are meant to lead you to God. Where ultimate meaning is found, 
In other words, if, you, if, if God continues to give you good gifts, you can be assured that he exists and that there is ultimate meaning in this life, even in the face of death. Death makes life seem meaningless, but eternal death is ultimately separation from God. That's what death is. But resurrection is the means by which we are restored to God. With sin and death dealt with, we are now welcome into the presence of God, and we are restored to God as our Father, where our meaning in life was always meant to be found in Him. And so every good and perfect gift that you're given, every simple little thing, every moment with your family, every good day's work to do, is a reminder that you have a God who saved you, loved you, and you are His child. And you remember that, and you go, ah. My life has meaning. And when meaning in life is found in view of the reality of eternal God, then it actually sets you free to simply enjoy the color of life that God gives you now, whatever it may be. Now, in other words, when you find meaning in the eternal God, you don't have to squeeze meaning out of all the little gifts that he gives you. In other words, if, if, if death is all this is, if, that's the, if it's death, period, full stop, then we have to try to squeeze out of the pleasures of this life every little ounce and drop we can. We have to drink the poison to the very bottom of the glass. This is eat, pray, love philosophy. We don't know what's gonna happen. Eat, pray, and love. This is the Billie Eilish. Eilish takes a cynical view. Julia Roberts takes a romanticized view. But both of them end the same way. This is all we have. Enjoy what you can. If there is no eternal home and there is no eternal God, if this is all we have, there is no ultimate meaning, then you have to squeeze whatever momentary meaning you can out of life's little gifts. But if you take the, love, the color of life's gifts and try to extract meaning from them, ultimately you'll suck the very color out of them themselves. For example, if a man makes sex his God and worships it and discovers, what he'll discover is that what, what is supposed to be normal and pleasurable and good soon becomes inadequate, not enough, and he becomes chained to a path whereby he begins to enjoy only perversion, not true intimacy, which of course is no enjoyment at all. The woman who makes her family her God and who worships her children discovers that they're going to fail her and disappoint her, and they do not achieve all that she wanted them to achieve so she is left empty and unfulfilled. This is what we do. We're like Tommy Boy when he gets a sale. Do you remember Tommy Boy? He talks about when he'd get a sale, and he's like, it's like he had a piece of bread in front of him at dinner, as he's describing it, and I get so excited, and then I ruin my sale, and he would break the bread and just scatter it everywhere. This is what we do with life's pleasures. We get so excited with it, we try to do more with it than it's meant to do. Listen, if you find ultimate meaning in God who made you, who saves you, and is the one who we, to whom we ultimately go, then life's gifts can be enjoyed for what they are. They're there to remind you that he is and that you belong to him. Is this earthly life our ultimate and final good? No. Is it a good gift coming from the generous hands of God? Yes. And so enjoy his good gifts. Go to parties. Stroll through a museum. Gather around a dining room table with your grandchildren. Sit and laugh with good friends for hours on end. And in all these things, lift up your eyes. And remember, they come from the hands of your Father. So remember your death, because it teaches you to enjoy your life today. Life's little enjoyments, but it teaches us one more thing before we close this morning. And that is to hope for eternal life. Memento mori, remember your death. Enjoy life's gifts because this teaches you to hope for eternity. The resurrection allows 
for both life's disappointment and death and life's enjoyments to both point us to our future hope. That's why God gives you sorrows and sufferings, to say, this is not your home. This is not your ultimate home. Death and disappointment, sometimes even life, even with the things that we enjoy, disappoint us and hurt us, right? <laughs> the museum you once enjoyed, well, now all you can think about is how your feet hurt when you walk around it. The parties are lame, and you're too tired to stay up past 8 o'clock anyways. The good friends betray you. The grandchildren ignore you. This is the sorrow of life to remind you that this is not your home. But this is good news, right? It's saying, listen, sorrows and sufferings, you, you can't wring a full glass of wine out of this life because this is not your home, and the tap is run dry. But the enjoyments of this world are not meant to be the best party you go to. So listen, there is another party to come, and we can actually get a taste of it. And that is where life's enjoyments, again, point us to our future home and our future hope. In the same vein, God's gifts are meant to make us homesick and to make us hopeful for heaven. His sorrows and sufferings that he brings is supposed to extract your roots from this world and say, I'm made for a different place. But also his enjoyments are also meant to say, aren't you longing for something even better than this? Doesn't that scratch an itch of enjoyment for which you want something more? The gifts of God, the things we enjoy so well are meant to make us long for heaven. I find it so interesting in verses 7 through 10. Did you see the imagery here? What do you see? Food, drink, white garments, oil, a husband and wife. What is this? He's reflecting upon a wedding feast. And this is because the Bible's picture of the best life they can offer us is simply a foretaste of a future wedding banquet to come, the beauty and the grandeur and the glory of which we cannot rightly put into words. Heaven, as it's described in Revelation chapter 19, is going to be a wedding feast in which he's going to gather all of his people around the table. The book of Revelation looks forward to this feast, and Isaiah chapter 25 also looks forward to it, where it says this in verse 6, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all his peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up death forever, and the Lord will wipe their tears from their faces." The good news of the resurrection tells us that we have an eternal hope and an eternal enjoyment awaiting us. That's why an old preacher that I used to listen to, my, there was one particular channel that we were not allowed to move the radio off of in our household. WCIF 106.3, it played nothing but hymns and sermons all day. But I remember one particular preacher that my, we would have, was always on on Saturday nights, Ben Hagen. He, he, he preached at First Presbyterian Church, Chattanooga, the scenic center of the sun, as they called it. But Pastor Hayden would begin every funeral. It was known smiling. What a, what a weirdo. <laughs> He'd get up and just smile at the people there. And this seems rather, well, not right and inappropriate. But that smile was a challenge in a sermon. And he would look at the crowd and say, the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. That's how he'd begin his funerals. You see, if there is a resurrection from the dead into eternal life with God, then death is the doorway now in which we pass into the banqueting hall of heaven where the God, the host, welcomes you and clothes you with the white robes of Christ's righteousness. And when that day comes, we will all swallow the choicest affair because God will have fully and finally swallowed up death forever. And therefore, what that means is this. Go and enjoy your life, it says in chapter 7, or in verse 7. 
not just for in and of itself, but to remember that every meal you eat with your family is a foretaste, an appetizer for the banquet yet to come. It is not just the meals we most remember or were an enjoyable gift from God. They were. But the true enjoyable gift that they are giving us is that they are giving us a shadow, a shadow that if we will trace back, we will find the great meal in heaven. We tend to think of heaven in ethereal terms, don't we? Heaven is misty. It's the vapor to us. That's the thing. It's opaque and misty and foggy, whereas this life today seems it's physical and vibrant and real, but we have it flipped. Heaven is the place of reality. The pleasures and enjoyments of today are the things that just a vapor and a mist and a shadow. Heaven will be more earthy and more physical and more vibrant and more real than anything you have ever experienced today. Can you imagine what a, what a heaven steak tastes like? And this is brought about and give, giving beautiful imagery in the last book of the Chronicles of Narnia series. If you're not familiar with this series, it's by C.S. Lewis. It's for children in which he, it's an allegory in which he's writing the kind of the story of the Bible and the gospel, the creation account and the gospel account and the struggles of the Christian life. And his last book is called The Last Battle. And it talks, it's the book about judgment and the end of Narnia, which is the country that he creates to tell this story. And he says this, that in the last battle, the children of the animals moved from old Narnia to what he now calls new Narnia, where they discovered that the new Narnia he describes as a deeper country, where every rock and flower and blade of grass looks as if it means more, where things are not meaningless but more meaningful, where things are not less enjoyable but more enjoyable, where things are not less real but they have a fuller reality to them. <laughs> and he chooses a unicorn to sum it all up. What a weird dude. But the unicorn speaks for all the animals and the humans what they were feeling and does this. He stamps his right forefoot on the ground and he neighs and he cries out and says this, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I have been looking for all my life. The reason why we loved the old Narnia is that it sometimes looked a little like this. But now we go further up and further in. So which will you choose? Death without resurrection? Where yes, you can enjoy a few moments of pleasure, eating and drinking, but those pleasures will be empty. Or you can choose death with resurrection where you can enjoy those things with those who love Jesus Christ and enjoy eating and drinking because this will be your eternal occupation. And let it and allow it to cast your eyes upward to the Savior who came and died for you and rose for you to his throne where you can say, thank God. And you can sit at a meal today, as many of you will go to with your family, and you can see good food and a loving family and saying, this is a gift from my real home. Passed on ahead of me. And you can say, I enjoy this because in it I get a sense of my eternal home with God. And you can thank him. And this is why we say, as it says in Psalm 118, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Let's pray. Lord, I, if I was speaking to monks and aesthetics, I, I would not think that, um, I would think that they need to hear that, hey, go and have experience more pleasure. We're Americans, though, so we got lots of pleasure. 
So Lord, I, I pray that as we go to experience the, the thousands of pleasures that we get all the time, that Lord, that you would now imbue them with, with truth and goodness and real. In other words, we want you in the gifts. So as we sit around this afternoon and maybe our kids hunt Easter eggs and we eat chocolate and maybe we have a good drink and we enjoy those around us, I pray that, Lord, we would not enjoy them simply just for themselves, but we would enjoy the God, the giver of all good gifts. And we would say, God, thank you for this little reminder. And heaven, please come soon. So I pray that we'd have that, you know, the hold both true, the goodness of today and our future hope for tomorrow. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.